Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today, we are pleased to have as our guest on the show, Mr. Van Lathan, who's really one of the most popular podcasts, podcasters in America. Uh, he is part of The Ringer, and he hosts two podcasts. One is Higher Learning with Rachel Lindsay, and the other is a favorite, <laughs> Way Down in the Hole with Jamel Hill. Uh, as everybody knows or may not know who listens to this podcast, Race and Democracy, I am a huge fan of The Wire. I have seen all 60 episodes at least a dozen times each season, at least a dozen times. <laughs> since- That's amazing. Since its premiere uh, in around 2001, when I was just finished grad school writing my first book. So I think that show is a totem. All the pieces matter. And I love that podcast. And I'm a big fan of uh, this current guest, Van Lathan, who's really one of the most important journalists and commentators uh, in America today. So uh, Van, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thank you for having me, brother. I just want to say for everyone right now, it is an absolute joy to be talking to you. I have recently started my way down the Peniel Joseph rabbit hole in terms of all of your books. I am through Sword and the Shield. I am halfway through Wait Until the Midnight Hour. And then after that, we're going to Stokely, man. So it's awesome to, it's awesome to talk with you. No, thank you. Thank you. I, I want to um, start by talking about this current cultural moment because you uh, do so much in the realm of, of sports and entertainment and culture. And what I really like about you and the podcast that you host is that you are probably the best reflection, one of the best reflections that I can think of of Renaissance Blackness. Sometimes we call it Black Twitter, but Black people are intellectuals. They're interested in sports. They're interested in romance, in food, in culture, in fitness, in wellness, in space, in science, everything. Kung Fu movies, <laughs> everything. And you're, you're the first person, I think, who really showed that in a popular culture way. Like when you listen to your podcast, you get all of it. Like this brother is, and I want you to tell us about your background. I know you're from the South, but this brother is authentic, is original, but also is intellectually curious, is funny, uh, is passionate. It's just extraordinary. And for somebody like me who grew up in New York City, Black New York, segregated New York, I always knew that this is just part of our community. But right. we really don't see it. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of divided in terms of so-called thugs, gangsters, drug dealers, or you're like the president of the United States, Barack Obama. We're, we're right. not all those things simultaneously. And I love the fact that you show all the, you show us in the complexity of who we are. Yeah, I appreciate those kind of words. I think for me, uh, growing up, there were a lot of different things that led to that. You know what I mean? Like you said, I am from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And being from Baton Rouge, you're, at least in my family, you know, I come from uh, one side, my, my dad's side of the family is from Maryland, Louisiana, very, very small town uh, outside of Baton Rouge, about 30 minutes outside of Baton Rouge and West Baton Rouge Parish. My mama is from the historically... Black part of Baton Rouge, which if you guys listen to Lil Boosie or any of those guys, Kevin Gates, all of those guys, that's what they rap about. They rap about the bottom. So McKinley High is where I went to school and all of that stuff. So I have the country rural aspect of Louisiana raising me on one side. On the other side, I have the inner city 
the the white flight, all of those those societal ills on that side of it and the transformation of that particular community raising me on the other side. I think what it did was it, it started making me curious about almost everything, right? Because my dad would say stuff and then my mom right away would contradict it. And then my mom <laughs> would say stuff and then my dad right away would contradict it. I remember my dad's family deeply, deeply devoutly Catholic and my mom's family deeply, deeply, devoutly full gospel, full gospel to the point that Reverend Ellis, my great grandfather, was the was the pastor of like 12 different churches. Right. Wow. So so you have uh, two things working at odds. My mother would see the Catholics doing their thing and she had a problem with it. She didn't believe in some of the things she didn't like Catholicism. She despised it. Right. And um, so I would we would flip up churches and stuff like that. We would go to uh, every Sunday. But what that made me do was ask myself, well, what is Catholicism? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so that's not what mama does. And this other is what is not what daddy does. Well, what's the difference? And that question, even that early on, started focusing my life. Like, well, what's the difference? What does this actually mean? What does this actually mean? And why people are at odds about it? Why isn't there some some sort of intellectual, spiritual reconciliation? And where is it the same and where is it different? I started asking that question about so many different things in your life. And when you ask that question, what does it mean? What is the difference? What is it? It leads you in myriad, myriad, like beautiful places. You you discover so many things. You, You stumble upon so many different things. And that's kind of where I guess the diversity in my thought kind of comes from just asking that central question that I had to ask to reconcile the relationship between my mother and father. How did you become a journalist? And you've done television journalism. You've done all these different things. Uh, People may know you from TMZ, The Ringer, so many different outlets. How did you, and when I would see you, you were usually one of the few Black voices on those outlets. So it's very interesting. How did you break through into journalism? Well, it was never something that I wanted to do. I actually, to a degree, don't even consider myself a journalist, but at certainly, I certainly broke stories for TMZ. The team, I started off at TMZ, brother, as a tour guide. And wow. like, I, I was a TMZ tour guide. Like you would come on my bus and I would yuck it up for you, teach you, like I have a love of Hollywood and I would you know tell you about all these different things in Hollywood. He came on the bus one time and he saw me on the bus and he goes, hey, uh, this guy's engaging. We got to try him on the show. And, and this so is Harvey Levin. Harvey Levin, the uh, <laughs> the dude at TMZ. Uh, yeah, right. Harvey Levin. So and then so he, he, he puts me on the show. And then from there on the show, they just started using my skill set in a lot of different ways. And before you know it, I'm a senior producer. there. Wow. And you talked about the love of Hollywood. What got you into that love of Hollywood? Because I have a deep love of popular culture and I'm always interested in popular culture and the impact on black people. I remember reading Bell Hooks in graduate school and her book, Black Looks, made me really rethink popular culture and the way in which blackness was was in popular culture at times, exploited in popular culture, but at times was very invigorating and beautiful. 
And I grew up at a time where there were independent Black filmmakers like Julie Dash, Daughters of the Dust, which I saw at the movies, Holly Jeremiah's Sankofa, mm. which I saw at the movies. But I also grew up in Southside Jamaica, Queens, watching Black exploitation films <laughs> and Shaft and Superfly and, you know, Denzel Washington on St. Elsewhere and Carbon Copy with George oh, Siegel. Carbon Copy and with yeah, George I'm, I'm very, in, I'm, I'm interested in cinema. And, and then yeah. I also knew about Charles Burnett and Killer of Sheep and these masterpieces. Mm-hmm. So how did you get this love of, of Hollywood? So two different ways, two different phases. The first phase was just that I fell in love with superheroes early on, right? Just mm-hmm. early on. Like when I was a kid and you wanted to get me out of bed and shout out to my father for always having the game to play me, to get me out of bed. My dad would be like, hey man, Superman's at the door. And so then I would run to the door to try to, to, to catch Superman before he left. But every time I was too slow because Superman had just flown away. So I so <laughs> so I was in love with superheroes and with the story of stories of their mythology from early on. And that dove me into comics. And if you want to open somebody's mind up to story and to cinema, comic books is one of the most amazing entry points to that. You're figuring out all of these powers. You're reinforcing some things that are negative and even white supremacists. And <laughs> but at the same time, my brain was just figuring out what happened after the last scene, after the last panel. But I remember very specifically a moment, very specifically, a moment that I'm watching and my mother will tell this story as weepy-eyed as, as, as beautiful Black mothers do. She will always tell this story. Sitting down, me and my mother were watching Do the Right Thing. Now, before then, the excitement of watching my parents go to movies is kind of what attracted me to them, right? My dad would get so excited to watch Eddie Murphy. My mother would get my, my my mother would get so excited for like when um when our trading places would be on where we would rent the video like they would get so excited about these films they would like you know there were there were events at this time like there was so much cultural pride in these people you know and the color purple the women of Brewster place was a television movie mm-hmm. all of these things meant so much to them so me and my mom one time we're sitting down and we're watching uh, do the right thing mm-hmm. right watching a movie. And uh, my mom can tell around this time that I'm actually into it. Like I'm understanding sort of everything that's going on in the movie. It's a, it's a maybe nine or 10 at the time. And it's a, it's a movie that's like, a, it's a little bit past what you would actually be able to digest at that age. But I'm into it. I'm getting it. I'm hooked. And she's into that. Like she, she tells the story. She goes, I see that he's not just glazed over. Like he's fascinated with what he sees. And um, I'm asking my mother uh, just different things about the film. And she goes, she looks at me, she goes, you see Mookie? The little guy who plays Mookie? She goes, yeah. She goes, that's Spike Lee. She was like, he wrote and directed the movie. Mm. He did it. He wrote and directed the movie. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she goes, well, when you write the movie, it's like everything that's happening like he made it up, like in his mind, it's all coming from him. And she goes, well, when you direct the movie, uh, you stand around and tell everyone where to go, everyone what to do. It looks like you want it to look. It moves how you want it to move. Like you're the boss. You're in charge. Without a beat, I looked back at my mother and I said, they let black people do that? Like <laughs> without even a hesitation, I said that. She goes, yeah, they let you do that. She's like, 
No one can stop you from doing anything. She was like, she felt indicted. She felt like, how could this be her kid asking what he could do? And she was like, yeah, yeah. Is that what you want to do? I'm like, that would be a lot of fun to do. And she started following me with movies. And before you know it, um, you know, it goes from do the right thing at nine or 10. By 13, I'm on to a clockwork orange. And now mm. we, we, we're deep into cinema. I'm seeing everything that comes out. I'm studying everything. I'm watching everything. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of where it started. And a lot of the lessons that I've learned about life have been through art. Art is still teaching me those lessons even today. And, and you know, that makes me want to dip into this discussion of The Wire, uh, because The Wire is so cinematic. The 60 episodes um, from 2001 to 2008, uh, five different seasons set in Baltimore. Uh, and I think the original speaking cast of 41 actors, 27, 27 of them were African-American, created by David Simon. But these indelible characters of Bodie and and Poot and Stringer Bell and Avon Barksdale, uh, Lieutenant Daniels, uh, uh, Lester Freeman, um, so many different, um, the bunk, uh, Jimmy McNulty. Uh, but we get the, we get the cops, the docks, city hall, we get the public school system, we get the media. And David Simon has talked about it as this, this uh, Dickensian tale of late capitalism. But Race runs through the wire. And this is the first series that we saw, because this is pre these brilliant new series such as Atlanta or I May Destroy You or Insecure or some of the golden age of television that we have now for Black actors. But The Wire was one of the first places that we saw uh, the complexity of the so-called criminal. Um, we saw, you know, Wallace. Uh, played by young Michael B. Jordan, season one, and what happens to Wallace. Uh, we saw, um, you know, different Black women and men who usually had bit roles on television series like NYPD Blue or like uh, uh, Hill Street Blues back in the day. Um, but this time, instead of being bit players, we found out who they were, their hopes, their dreams, uh, the betrayals, who they loved, and we developed deep empathy for them. So I want you to talk about what attracted you to The Wire and what has attracted the Black community to The Wire, because I think in a way, what makes your voice so powerful and the way in which it's so amplified is that you represent so much of what Black people uh, think about and enjoy uh, and 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 really imbue uh, their hopes and dreams and aspirations into in a cultural sense and are able to articulate that. So when people hear you and the conversations that you curate, people feel at home. Yeah, I, I think with The Wire, it, it's television that hadn't been tried before then and really television that hadn't been tried since in terms of what it specifically talks about. The first thing that we talk a lot about, we talk about propaganda now, right? And sort of shows that lionize the police and make the police force look like they're, you know, crusading for justice and crusading for, you know, the American way, like they're, you know, individual little Superman, right? The first thing that I noticed about The Wire, the most blatant and obvious thing was that they weren't doing that. I wasn't sure what they were doing when I first started watching it. And I will be honest with you that I only watched The Wire uh, accidentally 
I was a huge fan of The Sopranos. The Sopranos was the other mm-hmm. side of American drama. Highly, <laughs> Absolutely. Highly, you know, dramatized and, and very sort of playing into all of those gangster tropes and things like yes. that. And that's not copaganda, that's mobaganda. That's mobaganda. <laughs> that's, you know, that, that's mobaganda. So, you know, when, when I, I lead into the wire and I look and you see Jimmy McNulty and you see all of these things happening, you see a guy get off for a murder and it takes you about 10 minutes to realize that you're happy for him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, it, like, he, like he, he, he beat a murder. It takes you about 10 minutes to realize that you're happy that he beat a murder. Now, the interesting thing is is that you're happy that he beat the murder uh, on the show, which is unfamiliar because it is a show. But that's not to say that in South Baton Rouge that I hadn't been happy that guys had beaten murders before. So the feeling was familiar, right? But it's just not something you're used to consuming on television. And then when the wire starts to parse apart, the systems of policing, the drug war, politics and all of those things before you even realize what's happening you're seeing people you know in different characters i talked about cuddy's character right and i talked about uh cuddy's character a couple of episodes ago and how i had an uncle my uncle mark who the first time i met him he was a resident of angola state penitentiary and the first time i saw him free beautiful six foot five slim strong man uh, first time I saw him free, I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I listened to somebody talk about having given their best year, the best years of their life um, to the prison system, and just feeling like there was, he didn't even understand. He looked at me and he cried. He's like, yo, who are you? Like, you're 6'2". You know what I mean? Like, by the, time, well, the last time he had actually seen me, I was a baby. So The Wire takes those characters and really digs into them who they are. You talked about something earlier that's very important, how one or two different decisions in a life where the stakes are that high oftentimes dictate what's going to happen to someone. This this is all being recounted, right, by a, a former homicide cop and a former news reporter who were inundated with these stories for years and years and years. These tragedies, both personal and tragedies of system for years and years and years and walked away from the whole thing, feeling helpless to have done anything to change it. The one thing that they could do, the one salvation that those guys had was to take a a dramatic novelization of all of those things and give it to people and like lower the veil and let people see exactly how futile a lot of these things are. Another thing that The Wire does is it makes the viewer complicit in what's going on. Like you see these people and American capitalism, American excess, the uh, white flight, um, turning your back on the middle class, all things that a lot of Americans are you know, actively engaged in, your help creating these problems by buying the bullshit of the drug war, by buying all of these things, you're help creating these problems. These people are not just victims of West Baltimore. We can all look around and say, in a way, they're victims of you, the watcher, the viewer. Um, and then beyond that, you know, it just, it, it strips away 
you don't come away from the show feeling like you're better than anyone. That's a hard thing to do when you're watching a movie. When you're watching a film, you're supposed to feel like you're better than the villain. You're supposed to feel like you're not as good as the hero. The hero is supposed to show some uncommon bravery that keeps you, that keeps you coming back from the, for the sequels, right? You wish you could be as brave as Batman fighting mm-hmm. for everyone. You wish you could be as brave as Indiana Jones. You wish you could be as brave as Shaft. You wish you could be as brave as those guys, but you're not going to risk your life to solve a case. The Wire doesn't ask that for you from the heroes. You could be any of those guys because they're as fucked up as all as all get out, right? The Wire doesn't ask you. And it also tells you that the people in there that are the drug addicts and the drug dealers and the, the, the dancers that we typically look down on in society, you could have easily been one of them. And it's the only show that's ever really gotten that right. Now, I think that one of the interesting parts about The Wire is how uh, prescient and prophetic it turns out to be uh, in the age of of our plague and and mass unrest and Black Lives Matter. And I'm thinking of uh, Bunny Colvin and Hamsterdam and, mm. and the young people who, even when they're selling drugs in Hamsterdam, the free zone, uh, they call it pandemic. They're saying pandemic. Yeah, that, that's that pandemic. Crazy. We're in the middle of that now. That's where we're and at we're now. In <laughs> we're in yeah. the middle of a pandemic. But what do we think about, you know, I, in some ways, culture has been so mashed up uh, in the 21st century, but really hitting an apex in 2020, where we see um, aspects of the what the wire talked about just bombarding us uh, when we see racial uh, justice protests, unrest, but monuments of white supremacy um, toppling down. But we also see white supremacists marching in the streets. We see police brutality and state-sanctioned violence, including uh, police in Buffalo. Uh, cracking the skull of a s- elderly white man on national television, but these things had been hidden. The Wire uh, was only nominated for one Emmy and really posthumously became considered on critics a uh, top three, top ten shows many times, a number one show of all time. And many people have imbibed The Wire after it was on. The highest rated season of The Wire was season two, The Docs, where yeah. Yeah. conspicuously you had a, a lot wider <laughs> narrative, main narrative right. thread uh, yeah. with with uh, uh, Frank Sabatka and the the unions. Um, and so, you know, I want us to talk about, you know, we're in such an interesting time right now. You know, we have Watchmen, which was nominated for 26 enemies with the, um, um, you know, the incandescent Re- Regina King and uh, Cord Jefferson, uh, who's African-American, is is up for an Emmy oh, for episode six. My, a, uh, a, a friend, a friend of mine, by the way. And I'll tell you something. Brilliant. Like. Cord, me and Cord were sitting down, and this is not a flex, guys. I just got I gotta give Cord his flowers. Me and Cord are sitting down, me, Cord, and shout out to Tommy Alter. We're having, we're having dinner. And I know that Cord had written on Watchmen. And I'm I'm talking to him and I go, yo, man, I just like to let you know, the show is very interesting to, to look at and stuff like that. Had me having been obviously a gigantic fan of the graphic novel. And then I say, yo, when is it gonna start to come together? And he goes, I'm not at all to my own horn. All right. I was like, just answer the question, Court. He goes, my episode. Like, which is, that, my which o- is episode six, which is the origin yes. story of um, Hooded Justice. And so and he did not lie. Right. He did like just brilliant television. 
Yeah, and and when we think about everybody here who's listening, Watchmen is the Alan Moore classic. I'm a huge comic book head. This is one of the reasons why I, I vibe with Van so much. And I still have over 1,200 comics here, including Alan Moore, Watchmen, and Miracle Man, and all these different comic books. But Watchmen is set in an alternative uh, 1984, Ronald Reagan. There's these superheroes, but it, it connects superhero um, vigilantism to fascism, to authoritarianism, to sort of this almost or Orwellian sort of dystopian um, uh, all parallel universe. And what David Lindelof's Watchmen, along with Cord Jefferson in a writer's room that was 75% Black, according to Cord Jefferson, what they did is, is utilize the 1921 Tulsa massacre uh, as this alternate history of Watchmen, that you're living in a society where race is what shapes uh, the first uh, in in can in you know, the first inculcation of a superhero, Hooded Justice, is this Black man who had been a victim of the Tulsa massacre, who then is victimized again as being the first Black police officer of Tulsa. But once he arrests a white man, he is lynched by his fellow police officers who are connected to Cyclops, a white supremacist group, and they let him go um, as a warning. And he uses the, the, he goes through so much trauma, both in Tulsa and uh, as a police officer, he uses the 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 noose uh, to formulate this this uh, this vigilante, and people think that he's white. They think that he's white. He puts on the white eye makeup, and there's so much subversion there in terms of sexuality, and mm-hmm. it's so intersectional uh, because he's bisexual. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary. Um, it's extraordinary, and so what what are we to make of? This moment in terms of popular culture with, with again, with Watchmen, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with so many different companies and corporations, and even somebody like yourself who's talked about this before, but suddenly there's an audience to talk about race. Suddenly, uh, how to be an anti-racist, white privilege, uh, so you want to talk about race by Ijiomo Oluwu. Is uh, these are bestsellers. Um, some books have sold over a million copies this year alone. We're only eight months into the year, less than uh, uh, that are anti-racist books. So, what are you to make of all this? The NFL saying Black Lives Matter in Roger Goodell's hostage video. What are we to make of all this? <laughs> he looked like he was a hostage. <laughs> he looked like he was a hostage. Patrick Mahomes and the Black the brothers said Black Lives Matter. We are Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, uh, George Floyd, and within 24 hours. Roger Goodell was in his bunker in a basement right. with his eyes right. bugged out saying Black Lives Matter. Extraordinary. Right. It is. Uh, you know what, Dr. Joseph? Uh, I don't know. That's as intellectually honest an answer as I can give you. The, the part of me wants to believe that we're witnessing a genuine sea change in American cultural history where we can Take back, step back and take a look at the treatment and not just the treatment, but the contributions and the resilience of, 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 uh, of black people in America. Um, part of me really wants to believe that. Right. But and I blame you partly for this, too. <laughs> oh, having read, having read the sword and the shield. uh You've ushered me back into my militant phase. Um, uh, you know, I was coming out of it, but having read the Sword and Shield, you know, you're giving me 
You're giving me Malcolm, right? You're giving me the full Malcolm, right? Of a holistic view of Malcolm. And then you're giving me something that they never give me in Sword and the Shield. You're giving me the radical Dr. King, which I was eating up. I was eating that like some etouffee my mama made. I was, <laughs> I was loving that guy. I love that guy. And they don't, they don't give you that guy. No, no, he's extraordinary. But, right. But a part of me, um, uh, part of me has trouble uh, believing that America will ever be ready to take an actual look at the structures it was built on, the exploitation that it's taken part of, and just the, the erasure of Black culture. Because I want people to know something. For all of the amazing Black culture that gets celebrated in America, that is only the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg of what hasn't been erased, what hasn't been appropriated, what hasn't been suppressed or overlooked. It's all just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the taste. I don't really know if America would ever be able to handle us at full strength. But aren't us we at full participation? Us at full participation. But Van, aren't we doing that right now in the sense of you think about the 1619 Project, which is curated by uh, uh, the, the brilliant Nicole Hannah-Jones? Um, we think about even on television stars, P-Valley, uh, about Mississippi yeah, yeah. and, and, and uh, uh, what is it, Chuskaluka, Mississippi. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. we're getting different. You know, I May Destroy You with uh, yeah. uh, Michaela Cole, and that's br- mm-hmm. brilliant. We can talk about Black Brits and what does that mean for us? Uh, in the sure. context of of black culture, but Atlanta uh, and and the you know Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Issa Rae and Insecure, and the movie The Photograph, yeah. um, you know Queen and Slim, uh, Lena Thwaite, and what Lena Thwaite has done uh, when we think yeah. about LGBTQIA. So isn't it happening now? Though I understand your warning because we haven't shifted power relations where there are suddenly black studio heads and black network yeah. presidents and black uh, really venture capitalists and and uh, VC and hedge funders uh, who are really the oligarchs controlling our our democracy, which isn't really a democracy. Uh, it's it's under authoritarian and predatory capitalist uh, control in very obvious ways, in very obvious ways, whether mm-hmm. you're thinking about our food production, whether you're thinking about our lack of health care, um, whether you're thinking about a for-profit health care system, racial segregation in public schools uh, and education uh, and, and neighborhoods, but also just um, the way in which uh, we think about Silicon Valley and tech, which is connected to Hollywood, how white that is. And that's become this white male uh, utopian fantasy of the greater good. And black people don't apply, black women don't apply, uh, black queer and trans uh, don't apply. Um, So on some levels, until we fix that, we're not gonna be at full strength to use your words. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine who works in tech, right? And he was, he was telling me something. It was just fascinating. He was like, uh, "Do you? He's, it, it, it's hard for him in tech to get meetings for the things that he needs VCs to fund him for, right?" Um, you know, the thing about a tech guy is every tech guy thinks that they're a mini god. You're like, it's, they're coded. <laughs> I mean, code, coders by nature, they sit down and they create little universes. So it's very, very hard. To, to convince a coder of anything other than the fact that they're going to change the world. And he was, ta- 
talking to me about something. This guy's actually a black brother, known to my whole life. Uh, he was talking to me about the fact that, you know, a lot of the things that get invested into these hedge funds, he said, well, did you know that black bus drivers in Ohio are funding um, tech in Silicon Valley? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, you're a black bus driver in Ohio. You roll your pension fund up into something like that. Then the pension fund invests in some hedge fund. Then the hedge fund turns around and and gets like a, 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 a it gives a meeting to some young VC to some young tech people um, to to invest into their tech. He's like, but those people are never black. Mm-hmm. He was like, so even the money that we pay into this system, we never see our fair share of it. Even when you're doing the right thing and you're on, as they would say in the wire, the straight paying money to a pension fund. The pension fund is investing. Is that pension fund investing with black people? Probably not. So the money goes, not just the people and the tax base go out of the community, the money goes out of the community and doesn't come back to black creatives to fund a new a new generation of, of, of black ingenuity and black uh, as sort of tech conquering the world or however you want to put it. So I think about all of those things when I think about these, the black struggle in a, in a holistic way, right? From from tech, like you just did, from tech to politics, to all of those things. As far as entertainment culture, to answer your question, um, popular culture, I ha- are we to that point? The answer is, I think so. I think we're to the point right now to where uh, these stories are being appreciated the way they should be appreciated. I think so. Like I, I'm, I'm hopeful that they are. But remember, one thing is going to rule in this town. And that's the bottom line, mm-hmm. the money aspect of it, the economics of it. So it helps that Atlanta's a runaway hit show mm-hmm. across the board, not just in our culture, everywhere. Across the board, it's a runaway hit show. It helps that people love Insecure. It helps that Watchmen, even though Wendell Hoff is the guy that created Watchmen and got it on, that Watchmen is so black and is so big and has reestablished Regina, who doesn't need any reestablishing. She's mm-hmm. one of the biggest stars in, in the world. And then launched the career of Yaya. So it's, 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 it's all of these things are helpful, but I can't take my watchful eye off of the executives and the machine that's exploited our stories for so long. I got to keep that same. So to answer your question, I think so. I think we're in a new day. And I hope that that bears out that we are. And we're talking about Yaya Blay, who take, who plays Doctor Manhattan, a black Doctor Manhattan in 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 Watchmen. Which in and itself was revolutionary. Think about yes. that. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know Watchmen, most other uh, most other of the heroes in Watchmen are Batman like, meaning they are people that have trained themselves up. And they can do all kinds of amazing things. There's only one actual real superhero who is the most powerful being in the galaxy, and that is John Awesome and Doctor Manhattan. They made that character black. In this series, that alone, making that black guy the strongest hero anywhere was in and of itself revolutionary. I, I couldn't believe it. It was fantastic. The way it was executed was perfect. And also just the allegory about white supremacy for our 2020 oh. it anticipated both, um, you know, the low point of the current presidential administration uh, but just the the way in which there'd be resistance against white supremacy, but really um, white supremacy trying to shape and control a society through the criminal justice system. Uh, really sharp 
sharp stuff. Uh, really important. I, I want to talk about um, sports and uh, NBA and football. And what are what's the impact of people like LeBron James and the NBA? LeBron James pushing for voting rights, really in a nonpartisan way, just saying everybody should vote. But the NBA allowing its players to fully express themselves in contrast to the NFL that uh, famously um, basically blackballed Colin Kaepernick after his peaceful demonstration in 2016. Taking the knee during the national anthem protest against racial injustice. Um, what do we think about black players um, focusing like they did in the NFL, but the NBA for justice, really in a way that I would say that uh, we have never seen them as cohesive, including during the golden age of the civil rights movement? I've never seen anything like this. I'm amazed. And I've, I've asked several different athletes like this that I've interviewed, like, What's the difference? What changed? I'm amazed. I'm fascinated with it. I'm fascinated with it. Uh, we went through the biggest athlete of the 90s. It's Michael Jordan. You know, <laughs> basically saying Republicans buy sneakers too. Michael Jordan, outwardly, a guy who we all worship. And by the way, every time I say this, people think I'm getting that mic. Nah, man, I still, I still worship Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, the man. I'm just keeping it gangster. Like the reality is that Mike had an opportunity to get involved in something and he didn't want to do it because it interfered with his bottom line. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Michael Jordan's not a, he's not some social justice hero or champion. That's fine. That doesn't, you're not indicted for that, but we can say that he's not that. I agree. Right. And we went through kind of a time where the guys that did do things like that, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, Craig Hodges, Mm -hmm. were jealous. Yeah. Um, Like, get out of here. And then you had earlier on in that decade, Barkley saying, I'm not a role model. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like parents be role model. I'm here to play basketball. Um, and then all of a sudden, you fast forward a generation and everybody's involved. It's almost the opposite. If you don't have anything to say, you're looked at as corny. You're ostracized <laughs> in a different way. I, I, it, it, it can, I think there's a, there's two things to be said by that, about that in, in terms of the NBA. Number one, the NBA is the best league in terms of being reactionary and reactionary in a good way. The NBA doesn't try to, as a league at any other time, at, at any point, it doesn't try to, um, it's not rigid in its view of the world. The, the NFL is. The NFL tries to force people into viewing things the way that that league needs you to, for, to, to, to view them. NBA always, if there are more international players coming, they they lean into that. If the if the players have, I mean, the only thing they did lean into was all the gold chains and all of that stuff. They were like, no, that we can't do that. But the NBA tries to be pliable in its view of popular culture and the way things are going in society, and it tries to be supportive of its, of its players and what they care about. You know, and what they think. If you go back and you look at NBA All-Star games from years past, it really looks like the suburbs in the stand. Now you got Chris Rock and all the rappers and Migos, everybody. It's a young, sexy sport, and they want it to be young and sexy. And their athletes care about these things, so they're trying to care about the things that their athletes care about. And that's commendable uh, on the league's part for sure. What I'm more concerned with and what I'm more fascinated with is this generation of young black men in the NBA and do not leave out the WNBA, mm-hmm. which is 
also at the forefront of activism, really started it maybe a little bit even before the fellas did as a lead and, and, and like, you know, team to team. Like what changed? I don't know. Like, it, it, I can't really speak to it. It could have been a, a, a change in maybe societal uh, dynamics. You know, like a guy, you take a guy like LeBron James, you know, raised of the single mother. He understands exactly what he went without. He understands the genetic lottery ticket that he got that stopped him from being like so many of his friends or so many people that, you know, he was around. And now he knows how to facilitate uh you know, a success for other people. And he's actively doing that. So I can't say what changed, but I'm glad it did because you're, I'm not even just talking about the stars. I'm not talking about the older guys, the younger guys, the guys in the middle. It doesn't even matter. The guys who we think are knuckleheads, people, guys like J.R. Smith, the guy who I talk to who people think is a knucklehead. That brother is so involved in what's going on in Jersey, bro. He is so involved. It's well, amazing. I, I- I can tell you what changed. And one of my arguments and something I'm working on now is that, you know, we're in the midst of America's third reconstruction. And the first two, of course, are right after racial slavery, 1865 to 1877, where you get the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. So end of racial slavery, except for incarceration, like Ava DuVernay points out, birthright citizenship and black male voting rights. Women can't vote in this country till 1920. um, And most black women can't vote in this country till 1965. But that first reconstruction is stymied by racial terror and anti-Black violence. So when we think about the first reconstruction, it's really not the so-called Black codes, which should have been called the white supremacist codes instead of the Black codes that prevented us from voting. It's really going to be mass incarceration, convict lease system, and then the murder of really tens of thousands of people, more than we'll ever know, because we as a society are too caught up in lynching and the numbers of lynching between 1870 and 1950, anywhere from 4,000 to 6,500. Exponential times more were killed and murdered in towns uh, 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 in the South, uh, but then the West, and and then during the Great Migration too. So it's really an extraordinary story that's still not told. Second Reconstruction is a civil rights period from the Brown desegregation decision all the way to MLK's assassination. And now I would argue since the time of Obama and all the way up until now, 12 years, we're in this dramatic uh, transformation. But these these young people, and I, my next question is about millennials like yourself, because I'm saying anybody who's 40 and under, 1980, millennial, I'm a Generation Xer. These young people have been politicized by the Black Lives Matter movement. 1.0 was 2013-14 after Trayvon, after Michael Brown, with those folks, Patrice Con Colors and Alicia Garza, and, 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 and that group of Black, radical, queer, uh, LGBTQIA uh, folks who organized that. And the other has been this 2020 uh, as well. And certainly there's been pushback against the white supremacist, supremacist ideology and policies coming from the White House as well. And that being said, what what do we think? You've, you've been asked about the difference between racial justice and racial equality. I want to talk about that. But why are millennials... Um, so active. Uh, and I by millennials, I'm saying, you know, people born between 1980, roughly, and 1995, late 90s. And it was millennials who shouted down uh, Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. It was millennials who said that, look, Hillary had called us super predators. There are some people from my generation, like myself, who had always criticized the Clintons and the neoliberals. But our own contemporaries, and certainly the boomers, loved 
uh, Bill Clinton to the point where Toni Morrison, when he was under impeachment, said he was the first black president. Yet there's a newer generation that literally shouted down the Clintons and told them what they had done to black people was unforgivable. And these are the same generation. And you've mentioned people like Phil Agnew, who I know, Tef Poe, 19 Keys, um, Tiffany, uh, Dina Lofton, Kimberly Jones, Chanel Helm. You've mentioned those folks, no name, Tamika Mallory, Brittany Packnett, DeRay McKesson. You've mentioned all these folks. And what made them grab the mic from Bernie Sanders and say, we have to speak in Black Lives Matter at your rally? Because you talking about uh, economic justice, it's not enough unless racial justice is centered. So these folks have been really, really impressive. And certainly there's an older generation that has been steadfast right along with them. But I do have to say they've been truly impressive. I think the boomers are the last generation that truly believed in America. Like truly believed in America as America was presented, right? I think the election of Obama was was a tipping point for a lot of people like me. Um, I believed naively that the election of Obama, which is still a transformative moment in my life, I still can give you a million sob stories about why it meant so much to me. Mm-hmm. I believed that it was, the when they were throwing around that word post-racial, hook, line, and sinker. Mm. Hook, line, and sinker, all of it. I thought we had, I was going around telling my conservative friends um, from from Baton Rouge that uh, that you know they would we would never we wouldn't have another Republican president for 25 30 years it's like it's over we got it I mean I, I really I really was like complete naive all, all of it right then we lost Trayvon mm-hmm. and something happened to me personally when that happened when we lost Trayvon I was working at TMZ and <clears throat> I remember I I was just in the office and I heard somebody say, but see, it's not racist. Mm -hmm. I lost it. I lost it because I thought, I thought about George Temple, a friend of mine who was killed in Baton Rouge by a bystander when he was going back and forth with the police. I thought about all of these different stories. I thought about so many of these things that we had just kind of accepted as a way of the world. You know, I thought about Diallo and Luima and all of these guys, you know, I thought about, I thought about all of the ones that had happened. It's not like this hadn't always been happening. I thought about it. And I thought we're right back here again. And then I think an entire generation of people started to look at what do we actually have to do to affect change, not to feel better. Because with all due respect to the brilliance of Toni Morrison, saying saying that Bill Clinton is the first black president is something that feels good. Mm-hmm. It feels good, right? Because you have Bill Clinton and it seems like he cares about your problems. It seems like Bill Clinton is is a is a is, is somebody who you can um who you can rely on, but at the same time Bill Clinton then locks your uncles up. So it felt good, but it wasn't actually good. And I think the interconnected the interconnectivity of social media, how fast the information moves from one person to the next allows not just ideas, but feelings to catch fire. And I think there's a feeling of inadequacy, a, a feeling of displeasure, a feeling of dissatisfaction with the American status quo that exists on a base level now that I've never experienced before in my past. Mm. I think every time I talk to someone in the ilk of what you're talking about, they're talking to me about ways to make this country better. 
not ways to put a Band-Aid on it. And when you talk about systems rather than people, when it's not about Bill Clinton, when it's about the carceral system here in America, right? Mm-hmm. No, when it's not about George W. Bush, when it's about <clears throat> when it's about the, milita- the militarization of the police, when it's not about one guy, one evil dude, it's not about Dick Cheney, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's about whether or not women are empowered in their workplace, whether or not they 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 feel like they're getting equitable pay and treatment. When you talk about these things on a systemic level, and you talk to people who who are experts in them, voices like um like you mentioned Tamika. You mentioned mm-hmm. you mentioned all of these people, but so many of these voices that have such expertise in what specifically is wrong with America, you realize exactly the job that you have to do to fix it. And that job is for the youthful, it's for the young, it's for mm-hmm. the people who have the most energy. I remember Pac said back in the day, you know, I love that the world hears me like I am right now. Because when I get older, that fire probably is going to leave my belly. But like where I'm at right now, I'm screaming and I'm shouting for it. And, you know, and we, we, we're, we're like, we're seeing that. And there's so many, to be honest with you, so many aspects of this. Like I talk to, to guys like you and I feel overwhelmed with the weight of your insight and the historical analysis of what black Americans have gone through and not just what they have gone through, but what they've overcome and the realities of it and how interconnected all of it is. Right. And then I talk to other people and I feel overwhelmed by their understanding of just what's wrong with America. Mm-hmm. But then I get inspired by the fact that we have the right doctors who diagnosed it because these are mm-hmm. things I've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of defunding until just now. But you talk to Philip McHarris, he's been living this for years. You talk to Mark Lamont Hill, he's been an abolitionist for years. They gave me a shirt one time to wear on this to wear on the show and the shirt said, I am dedicated to the abolition. It's a quote by a lady. I, I'd have to see the shirt. I'm dedicated to the abolition, the abolition of all jails and prisons. I wore the shirt because this group asked me to wear it. They said it would be a big deal for us. But I didn't believe it because how could I envision a society at that point, this is six, seven years ago, with no jails or prisons? Or how could I envision a society where, you know, so much money is being put into that, that we're not putting money into things that would actually make these communities better. I had no concept of it and I'm still learning. So I just think that there's so much, there's such a better way to share information and there's so much of, there's so many more effective ways to hook people into uh, exactly what the problems of the world are um, that it's both daunting at times, but also incredibly inspiring. And this generation, they just know they know how to do it a little bit better. They, they, they're, they're more involved. They they got out into the world. They did everything that they were supposed to. You know, they went to college and they came home and they still didn't have any jobs. You know, they went out into the world and they, they, they code switched. They still got beat up by the police. Mm-hmm. So the question is not how do we cover it with a Band-Aid? The question is how do we heal the wound? Mm-hmm. And it's going to take some work. And I think a lot of people out there are ready to do that work. It's going to be hard. You had a podcast called The Red Pill. And when you think about the matrix, blue pill, red pill, and I think what you've described about uh, you listening in new ways is about opening up your eyes and being in this space that some of us have been fortunate enough to be in uh, for, for a long, long time. But I'll admit that 
even before Barack Obama, and I'm thinking about the Jenna Six, I'm thinking about uh, Hurricane Katrina. Oh my God, that's right around the corner. Like, I was, yeah, all of that. Yeah, I'm thinking about Yusef Hawkins, though, growing up. I'm thinking about Michael Griffith, Sean Bell. Being in this space was much lonelier. It was, because the, the work that I've done uh, it's at an all-time high in terms of interest uh, in in the work that I've done, but I've always thought that this work was central, right? You know, I want to close out by talking about Black Twitter and something culturally that I'm really um, intrigued by. Two things, and because I couldn't let you go without talking about Cardi B uh, and Black right. Rage and Black Rage, right. because. Right. Um, I think you've spoken eloquently about Black rage and Black men and women uh, being expected to act rationally in irrational situations. I think one of the interesting things about Malcolm X and then Dr. King is that Malcolm showed you Black rage in full display. There's an interview with Malcolm X in 1964 where he says that Black people are angry and I'm the angriest. (laughs) And that always... Always. I just couldn't believe it when I read that. He said, Black people were angry. And he said, I'm the angriest, right? And he was angry about all of the death and the racism and the white supremacy and the segregation and the murder and the incarceration in 64. And that's only increased in 2020. So I want to talk to you about Black rage, both rage against white supremacy, but also Cardi B, because I think it's very interesting, the reaction to WAP and so many, I think, misguided men in, in, in a lot of cases, Black men sort of blaming Cardi B and blaming her for this structural vulnerability that Black communities face, whether it means that young or teenagers have higher STD rates. They don't have this because of what Cardi B is saying in this very patriarchal, uh, homophobic, predatory capitalist society that we live in. She is not part of some kind of conspiracy to destroy uh, Black culture. And she's not some uh, representation of the, of, of, of the pathology of Black culture either. I think so much is going on all at the same time, but I was so interested in the way in which aspects of Black Twitter either praised and celebrated her or, or vilified and demonized her, not to mention the whole uh, Kylie uh, uh, Jenner being part of that, uh, the cameo and a big, a big uh, media explosion, people wanting her to be taken off of the video. But what do you think about that? This idea of Cardi B and, and how certain Black women can be used as scapegoats to what's going on in the society. So we sort of might elevate Beyonce right now and we say, Cardi B, there's something really negative, but also this idea of rage, Black rage in the context of 2020. Mm. So as to Cardi B and, and sort of uh, when we self-critique our, our, you know, each other, people are going to have different levels of, of moral response to, to, to things. They are. Um, But I think overall, we want so badly to believe that it's us. The one thing that we have been convinced of is that if we acted better, we'd be treated better. (laughs) And that is is the first thing that you have to convince the people of in order to continuously subjugate them. Mm -hmm. if, if If we're acting better, well, don't resist. Don't assert your American rights. Don't ask why you're being stopped even though that's well within your rights. Don't, don't, don't do any of that stuff and you'll just be good. They, wanna, they want to believe, in order to believe in America, you have to believe that if you go out there and you work hard and you do things the way that you're, that you're supposed to do them, that things will work out for you. So if you're in a thong and you're shaking it all around the place, well, that's bad. That's 
gonna lead to other things being bad. And now the reason why things happen, it's not because of the situation that you've been put in or structures that are intentionally marginalizing you or oppressing you. It's because you shook your butt in the thong. So when that happens, don't expect anybody to come to your defense because you shook your butt in the thong, right? Right? So as long as we stand up straight, back straight, mass or treat us nice. That's something that black people have sucked. Now, I'm not going to speak for all of us, that a lot of black people that I know have, uh, have swallowed hook, line, and sinker for a long time. And a lot of the praise for the video, to me, it's just a music video. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. Mm-hmm. I think it's, to, to a degree, always a revolutionary act whenever, whenever anyone says they don't care about anything. Because caring is the way that they get you, mm-hmm. right? So whenever you say, like, I'm naked and I don't care, I go, hats off to you because I'm not going to be naked. <laughs> so, it, it, you know what I mean? So it's, it's always a revolution, especially when women do it. So I understand people that lean into that, that link that leaned into that, but it's not, it's not the March on Washington and it's all, it's not Anton LaVey's church of Satan. It's a music. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And shout out if you go to the church of Satan, I'm not dissing. I'm just saying like, it's not, it's not, it's not either of those things. It's like, it's, it's a music video. So like relax in a real way. Um, in, t- in terms of black rage, we got to hold on to our rage. I, they, they socialized my rage out of me for a long time. Like I, when I was I, growing up, I was in the gifted program. I was with all the white kids, right? And mm. I was angry. So there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of stuff to be angry about. You got kids coming in there wearing shirts saying Russia's right, Rush Limbaugh stuff. You got Confederate flags in your face. You got all mm. of that stuff. All of those things. And then at the same time, you know, you're dealing with drug addiction in your family. These people here are, are, are talking about all different types of things that they have absolutely no idea about. You, you call something ghetto, you ain't never seen the ghetto before. You don't know what ghetto is. You, you, you say somebody's acting like a crackhead, you don't know any crackheads. I know crackheads. Like, you don't know what that, like, you don't know my, like, stop, stop lampooning my life with every sentence that you have. It's making me feel small, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of reasons growing up that I was angry. I was angry that some of that stuff was my reality. I was angry about that. And I had a right to be angry. And what I should have done was weaponize my anger to put me in the position to solve problems. But what I let people do for a long time is use the pejorative of the angry black man to subtract mm-hmm. my anger from me. And to make me feel that if I was angry as a black man in America, that I was wrong. Whereas if you are a black man in America and you are paying attention, there's almost no way to not be angry. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but, and especially if you're a black woman in America, there's almost no way to not be angry. So I think that um, after a while, we understood that maybe playing nice wasn't the best way to do anything. Like we watched President Obama, the leader of the free world, endure uncommon criticism and disrespect from people who he was over. Name me another time during a State of the Union that someone yelled down and called the president a liar. Never. Like, I mean, like, I mean, just it, I would have had him beheaded. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I know you can't. I know you're kidding. We'll tell our viewers. Right. I know you're kidding. Right. No, I'm definitely kidding. But I'm just saying, like, I'm the leader. Who are you? But there's but that man believes he's better than President Obama because he's white. How can you you looking at that or the or the Arizona governor pointing to his face on a, on a tarmac? Like how can you look at that and not be mad? That anger is useful. It's not to be misplaced. 
It's not to go out there and hurt anybody who didn't earn it. It's not to hurt anyone, but it's useful. It's useful because you talk it out with your brothers and your sisters. And brothers and sisters, I mean, are anybody that you can fellowship with. If you can fellowship with someone who doesn't have black skin, that person is your brother or your sister. Mm-hmm. If they are wholeheartedly understanding your um, your experience and willing to help, that person is your brother or your sister. So it's, it's helpful when you fellowship with them. It's helpful to drive you to build a better America. And it's helpful when you need to destroy something. When I say destroy something, I'm not talking about anybody's shop or anything like that. I'm talking about destroying the structures that add to the oppression of Black people. I am intimately acquainted with my anger. I sleep with my anger. I play basketball with my anger. I control my anger, but I'm not giving it back to America, Dr. Joseph. I'm okay with it. I'm not giving it back. When there's nothing to be angry about anymore, I'm not going to be angry anymore. All right. Well, well, you know, I want to have one last uh, question just about hope. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel hopeful, Van, in terms of like, you know, the future, what the next 10 years will bring, what the next year will bring, the 2020 election? Do you feel hope? I'm not just hopeful. I'm excited. I am. And I'm excited because of the talent that we have, of the voices that we have. Like three weeks ago, I hadn't read any of your books. I'm happy and excited that you're here. That Someone has done this work that I can follow in the footsteps of somebody like you and just read your thoughts and that'll make me better and more equipped. You know what I mean? And I'm happy that when I reached out to people, so many of, of uh, so many other people knew exactly who you were so that those people who I was confiding in, they were doing work that I wasn't doing. And so I'm happy that people that that there are so many people that are experts in this, so many people that are so devoted to this. So, like, man, Tamika Mallory moved to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. She moved to Kentucky. Now, I'm not saying that we haven't had the Ella Bakers and the Rustins mm-hmm. and the Evers and the people in the past. We've always had them. But I'm also happy that those people and their spirit and the spirit of their advocacy and activism has been reincarnated into a whole new generation now. Because I feel like with that, plus some of the economic base that we might we might have now that maybe we didn't have then, with some other things, we're in a good space to get some problems solved. And even if we don't, even if I don't see it, I'll never lose hope. Because if I lose hope, then all I have is my anger. And then you got a problem. Anger and no hope leaves a human deficit that nothing can fill. So... For me, I'm angry, but I'm also equally hopeful. That, to me, makes a comprehensive man, a comprehensive Black man, and a comprehensive member uh, of the American community. All right. That's great. I mean, we'll leave it right there. We've been talking with uh, Van Lathan. Really a wonderful conversation. Um, I've learned so much and enjoyed the conversation so much. And Van is... Uh, on two podcasts is an outspoken, one of our thought leaders on sports and culture and politics and Blackness. Uh, he works for The Ringer. Uh, he co-hosts the podcast Higher Learning, and he also co-hosts the podcast Way Down in the Hole with Jamel Hill. Higher Learning is with Rachel Lindsay. And Way Down in the Hole is about one of my favorite shows of all time, The Wire. All the pieces matter. All the pieces fit. 
And uh, we've been talking about all the pieces about Blackness in American popular culture in this age of Black Lives Matter uh, with Van Lathan. Van, thank you so much for coming on our show. It's been a great conversation. I look forward to following your career and your path. Appreciate you, brother. Everybody go get the sword and the shield right now. It's really fantastic. I'm going to mention it again. It really is a fantastic book. <laughs> go get the sword and the shield right now. I love this, brother. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.